Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk podcast, where it's our goal to communicate late breaking news and thoughtful insights about the broad array of topics in the ResNet ecosystem. Today is really some late breaking news. This time when the novel coronavirus has impacted so many aspects of our daily lives in both personal and business ways, we often hear of the new normal. In the case of home energy ratings, where the object of the work is a home in the field, often with others from other trades present, the new normal has to be carefully thought out and developed, and most importantly must be iterated with feedback from the field in order to perform at an acceptable level. Today, Scott Doyle joins us. Scott's with ResNet. He'll be talking about detailing out the temporary protocols that have been established for emergency virtual inspections. He and the team at ResNet have fielded many questions and received valuable feedback as the procedures have been iterated. We'll learn about the development process of the default test values and applicability of using all the optional protocols. To keep up with the very latest on this important topic, you want to go to the ResNet homepage at resnet.us and click on the ResNet COVID-19 updates link at the top. So let's listen in as Scott describes to us the emergency virtual inspection and alternative testing protocols for the COVID-19 situations. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Bill. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on today. Our topic today is to discuss some of the temporary and optional protocols that have been created for remote inspections. In general, there's been a lot of things, a lot of response to the COVID-19 pandemic which has caused the way of uh, many businesses to change the way they operate. And the team at ResNet had to get together and figure out a way to keep things going. So that's really what we'll be talking about today. And congratulations for the hard efforts and the hard work that your team has put in on this. Thank you, Bill, and thank you for having me on. Getting our team together these days is a lot like getting our team together most days because we all already work remotely. But I know that's a new thing for a lot of folks out there. Suffice to say, just like all of all of you listening out there, we've spent a lot of time on the phone and in virtual meetings. So as we get into this topic of the temporary protocols, just kind of lay out the whole sort of timeline that you had to sort of think about, react, make the changes. What's going on? How did this all come together? And we're recording here on May 7th. And really sort of the pandemic was really starting to take hold in mid-March. So tell me about sort of the timeline of things. Yeah, it all seems like a bit of a blur. So forgive me if I get any of these dates wrong. Oh, yeah. No, no, no definite dates. But it's just there's things that had to be done. It wasn't something you could flip a switch. That's the uh, emphasis here. Yeah, for sure. We were monitoring a very quickly changing dynamic where there were a few states with restrictions and then. Suddenly, with guidance from the federal government, the majority of states and then basically all states, and then we're trying to discern, like many businesses are, well, what does that mean for our industry and for our business? Meanwhile, we'd received a lot of communication from raters and rating providers wanting to see some action from ResNet. Not necessarily all consistently the same requests, but everything from We need some leadership from ResNet to essentially shut the industry down to we need some leadership from ResNet to allow the industry to continue to operate safely. So that put us in a unique position to 
see if we can find some ways to really impact public health, especially the health of our constituents. That's typical. ResNet has to respond. It's a member-based organization, if you will, and you have to listen to where the members are going and synthesize that information to come up with the right kind of plan to move forward according to the will of the organization. So kind of getting into the detail, what's happening with the protocols and things like default test values? So just kind of lay out the structure of what's happening now. And you mentioned to me earlier, this is really optional. So maybe that's the thing to focus on too. We initially rolled out temporary protocols for remote inspections. And those really followed. The reason that we were able to do that on pretty quick notice is that we, ResNet had already set down a path for allowing remote or virtual, if you want to call it that, quality assurance inspections. And the use case for that really was imagined several years ago and put us on a path to pilot these test procedures and refine them and create a protocol they're recognized now in our standards, and they were usable before this pandemic even became sort of a new use case for that. That was limited, however, to just quality assurance. So you still had a, a ResNet professional in the home, in the field with their testing equipment, presumably the reader or another representative of the quality assurance designee who would be sort of the hands and eyes in the field allowing the quality assurance designee to still see what they're supposed to see, observe what they're supposed to observe about a house that has been previously raided, and then basically gather the information that they would normally have gathered if they were there in person. So they're perhaps on the other side of the country, but they're live through a video and audio feed, essentially letting somebody else walk them through the house and perform the tests. So that protocol was for specifically for quality assurance. And one of the first things we did was we removed the restrictions to it because it was limited to certain circumstances. So it was very easy for ResNet to quickly pivot away from that and say, okay, remove the limitations. Let's start using this now because otherwise people would be compelled to potentially put themselves at a health risk and get on airplanes and travel just for the purpose of meeting our quality assurance standards. But with those protocols in place, it was easy enough to imagine how this might be possible for raiders to have somebody on the other end for them. So if the raider could not safely be in the home for an inspection, or if a builder or a jurisdiction municipality was limiting the number of people that could be on the job site and in the home at one time, there was some perceived need for the raider to be able to still do their inspection without visiting the home and being just one more person on that job site. So the remote inspection protocol that we put into place followed very closely the one we'd already piloted and tested and put into our standards for quality assurance. The difference being now you have a builder representative who is actually on the ground in that home and the raider is the one on the other end, presumably in an office at their computer at their desk. So that created a real difference there with the person who's actually in the home isn't a trained ResNet professional. They don't have any certifications and they don't have the test equipment. So largely those protocols were limited to visual inspections and how the reader would document minimum rated features remotely. Got it. What kind of questions have you fielded from deploying that? Oh, a lot of the questions have to do with 
how to follow ResNet's existing standards and expectations for the supporting documentation that readers are supposed to have. So under ordinary circumstances, when a reader makes an actual visit to the home, they're documenting things with photo. They're taking pictures of model numbers. They're taking pictures of their test equipment to show the, the infiltration rate and duct leakage rates. They're filling out written inspection forms to document other features. We've got a lot of questions about how that can be accomplished when the reader isn't visiting the home. Some features maybe aren't very visible at that stage of inspection. Some features just don't show up really well through the video audio feed. We've had questions about homes that are in areas with poor cell reception. So folks asking about, can this be done in a recording? Could the building representative basically just record the walkthrough and then send that file to the reader? So that's given us a lot of food for thought, a lot of instances where we have to draw boundaries and limitations on this. We're trying to be as liberal as we can to try to facilitate the rating industry to still be able to operate during this pandemic, but do it safely. But we still have to find some limitations and boundaries. Otherwise, we potentially undermine the entire rating itself. Yeah, this is not an easy situation. How easily understood do you think it is that the impact of doing these things a different way, is that part of the what you have to do is explain the impact? I mean, it's we, real test versus default, that kind of thing. There's real concern, I think valid concern, for whether this would set any precedents for our industry going forward. We don't know when it will be, but one day the pandemic will be over and restrictions in all states will be lifted, presumably, and people will try to go back to something resembling normal business. One of the concerns is, well, if you've started doing ratings without actually visiting the home, or if you've started using default test values, then does that set a precedent and essentially tell the consumer or the builders and developers that this is how ratings should be done? So we've had to be very careful to take that into consideration, try to make clear that we're not saying that use of default values is as good as the normal operation. We're in unprecedented times here. And in terms of trying to balance people's health and public health, I really think that we had to find some reasonable ways to operate that would limit the number of people on job sites or face the possibility that states and municipalities would shut down construction entirely. In other words, if it couldn't be safely done, even those states that had deemed construction as essential, and we've seen that in places like Washington, where they were allowing construction, and then they took a look at how it was happening, and they decided it doesn't seem like this is going to be able to be safe, and they shut it down in some areas. So we're really trying to make sure that what we put in place here isn't a death sentence for the industry today during the pandemic, but also doesn't set us on a really bad path going forward. So we're trying to make very clear these are temporary, and we expect that the use of default test values will not outlast the 120-day time period that the amendment has been put in place. Right. So that, that was an important thing I was going to say, if you didn't, that there is an expiration on these. It was put into place, adopted on April 20th, 2020. So 120 days, that's four months basically from that point. Is that correct? Yeah. And what we've said is that we would revisit the policies as they expire. So we're putting them in place 
with the expectation that that we'll be able to return back to normal infield inspections. But if that's not the case, we could extend those policies. So I'm cautioning that I think that in the case of the default test values, that that will be ended in 120 days. But that's also really pending what's going on with the pandemic. Are there any special notations that a rater needs to make for these ratings? Or is that just automatic? Uh, I mean, will be noted that defaults are used. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest thing is that we have a revised disclosure form. We need to make sure that we're communicating through our disclosure form to the buyer, the end user of these services, um, that this home was the rating that you see was completed using temporary emergency protocols. And I think you'll probably see some of that in other industries that have adopted emergency protocols where there's some means of communicating to the consumer if anything's different than normal. And that's the primary thing. We've also had to wrestle with how do we track these because ultimately, ResNet, we have our database, but a lot of things are automated. A lot of things come straight out of the software. And you can't just flip a switch and have a new version of software that is ready to implement emergency policies like this. So really kind of relying on more low-tech solutions for tracking which homes use these protocols, which homes used default test values, which homes were verified using remote inspections. So at the end of the day, we'll have a good picture of how broadly these were used. And also, we want to make sure that we place special emphasis on those that set of homes through quality assurance so we can we can have greater assurances that people didn't just relax because they felt like they weren't going to have any oversight on these ratings. So we want them to be based on real data with regard to the virtual inspections or remote inspections. There's nothing really different about those. The ratings and, the, and what's in the model should represent exactly what was visible and inspected in the home. The only exception being the use of the default test values if the rater chose to use those as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about those default values, where they came from, and just a little perspective on that? Yeah, so that challenge was put to our team, the quality assurance team, because the first phase of using remote inspections only was going to go so far in terms of protecting public health. We still hadn't resolved what would the rater do about the test. If you have a builder representative in the home and you can use Google Duo or Skype or FaceTime or something, and sure, they can walk you through the visual inspection part of the raider's job, but they don't have the test equipment. And even if they did, they don't have the training and the expertise to actually set it up. Sure. Get a valid test. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we really, um, our executive director put that challenge to us. Let us consider the use of default test values. We have a database with a million and a half homes or something in it. So we have a lot of actual test data. And we set out to essentially analyze the real test values that we have. We broke that down by climate zone so that we could create test values that were based on reality. What are the rated homes? How do they actually perform? And in using that that view, breaking it down by climate zone, we're able to create a set of data going back for about a year and a half. So we're not talking about five years ago when practices were different. We're talking about more recent practices and homes that probably had to meet more advanced energy codes. And so that data set 
we looked at it in several ways. We first looked at the averages. We compared those to what kind of code targets people are going to be facing, energy star targets and programs like that. We looked at some other percentiles. So the 75th percentile is the one we settled on. We looked at the 66th percentile. What that really means is that in a set of data, 75% of the values would be greater than the default that we chose. So for climate zone 1A, the air infiltration rate, the ACH50 value is 5.11 in our climate zone default. What we're really saying is that in our set of data for climate zone 1A, 75% of the homes in that data set perform better than five air changes at 50 pascals. So it's more conservative than using the average. But we didn't want to go so conservative that no one would even bother to use them. Got it. Not an easy challenge to undertake this. And you did something similar with duck leakaged outdoors? Yeah. In order to normalize that for house size, we use some different units than people are used to in our industry. We're using leakage to outside in CFM per 25 per square foot. So it's a decimal value. It's usually... The targets that people think of are per 100 square feet, either for code or for programs like Energy Star. So this is the CFM 25 per square foot value just as a way to normalize for house size. And we used that same data set going back 15 months. And we had to sort that data. So we're only using confirmed ratings. We're not using sampled ratings, which wouldn't represent actual test values. And from those confirmed readings, then we created the 75th percentile default value. In some cases, those aren't going to be good enough to meet local codes or utility incentive programs or Energy Star or whatever the builder is aiming for. So rather than try to reverse engineer these values to meet code, which is really almost impossible because there are so many different jurisdictions around the country, and even if they adopt the same code like the 2018 IECC, there are a number of instances where they amend things. And one of the things they amend is the air infiltration and duct leakage targets. So it's not very feasible to try to reverse engineer these defaults to make everything just pass code. And that means that jurisdictions might be faced with deciding to allow a variance and just allow these values, or it might mean that the rater can't use these values because maybe the whole reason that they're doing a rating and a test is to try to meet a program or a code. So we've got some other allowances besides these climate zone defaults. Another methodology that we're allowing is uh, to calculate builder-specific defaults. So in the example I gave in climate zone 1A, that air infiltration rate of five air changes, is it represents all the ratings and all the builders in climate zone A for that time period. And if you're a really good builder building in that climate zone, you might feel like some of your competitors who aren't doing as well are kind of dragging you down. And this allows the provider to calculate a specific default rate just from that builder's data set. So we had to come up with an entire methodology for how to do that. And we published a protocol document for providers to follow that allows them to calculate specific default values for a builder in a specific metro area. So they would use a set of data that's defined as with the time period, 
These would be tests that were performed basically from December to March. So recent test values. They would be in the same metro area. We've given them a, a way to define metro area, kind of the same way that the U.S. Census Bureau defines it. And then it needs to be the same home type. So if a builder builds attached homes as well as single-family detached homes, then they would split that into two data sets to calculate two different test values for the builder. And then we've created a little spreadsheet calculator that uses the same formulas we use for our climate zone defaults. So they could just plug in their actual test history on homes for that builder in a given metro area. And then our spreadsheet calculator would give them the 75th percentile that they're allowed to use as default values for that builder. So if somebody's performing a lot better in their more recent test history, they wouldn't have to use the climate zone defaults that we published earlier. They could allow the provider to calculate one specific to their past history. That's pretty awesome. I mean, it's a custom tailored fit. And I will provide the link in the show notes to that spreadsheet calculator, as well as the document that was released on April 27th, which is the temporary ResNet protocols for default test values during the pandemic. Everything we're talking about here for further review, as well as these links, the rationale behind it, really, it covers the whole topic in uh, nice black and white detail. So again, thank you. I think the Raiders will thank you for doing this. Um, Very open and forthcoming. Yeah, it's been a lot of work. So I know that not everybody's going to find these to be usable. And everybody's going to be in a different circumstance where, you know, maybe you have, as a provider, you have found safe ways to allow your Raiders to access homes. I know that some builders are really doing an exemplary job of specifically limiting the access to their job sites where it's one trade has this time slot, you show up at your time slot, nobody else is allowed in the home. And for some people, those might be the kinds of assurances that they're looking for to allow their folks to go out in the field and do tests. Other folks are facing much more stringent restrictions. And the ability to do remote inspections is really a lifeline that allows their businesses to continue forward and not just fold as this pandemic stretches on. Absolutely. Yeah. My business is based in Ohio and our governor actually has sort of a one pager on restarting manufacturing distribution and construction with very specific details about employees and guests, shift pattern, physical spaces, workstations, uh, what to do if there's a confirmed case. So it's daunting to have so much contradictory information from a national organization to try to encompass all of that. And I think you've done the most reasonable and honorable job in in coming up with this option for the system. Yeah, it really is just an option. I want to emphasize that as much as possible, that certainly there are folks who they don't want to set a precedent in their area for doing default test values and those kinds of things. And if they're still able to safely get people to job sites and complete testing, then we're not standing in the way of that. We're not saying that people must use these remote inspection protocols or default values. We're just providing this as an option because there are folks who really wanted it and it is in the interest of public health in their local areas. And it's not just this aspect that new things have had to come about. And there is, if you go to resnet.us, right at the top of the page, the COVID-19 updates, you can find details on what we spoke about today and more. And I think the important thing here 
But like so much of this is you really do have to look frequently because things will be changing. Things will be updated. There is at least a weekly newsletter coming out for to pick up things like that. But you're also encouraged to go back and look at this update on the resna.us website. Yeah, thank you for plugging that, Bill. And I can't emphasize that enough that as things change and everybody's getting bombarded in your email with updates from everybody that you've ever done business with, every airline you've ever flown with, every streaming service or everything is sending you emails on what are they doing among or under these current circumstances. And so we recognize that you might miss some of these policies, but they are really big deal to the Raider shop or to the builders and other stakeholders. And so we have tried to keep everything that we're also sending out by email. We've tried to keep all of that curated on that webpage that you referenced. Any other things that sort of touch your purview in technical director that you'd want to mention just to mention that it's changed or update things people should look for? Yeah. So testing and training is underneath my umbrella. and We have created some allowances for remote proctoring. If you imagine that the demand for readers are people who are, who are partway through the process of achieving certification in our industry, and all of a sudden they're faced with these current circumstances where every library, every college campus is closed, how do they go and take a test? So we've been able to put into place some remote proctoring procedures to allow people to continue moving forward with their training and certification. We've put some other temporary procedures into place, policies largely that are creating some allowances for the timelines and deadlines that were coming due during this time period. So that would be everything from quality assurance reports that were due on March 31st to professional development for somebody whose certification was about to lapse. They might have been planning to go to a professional conference and those conferences have been canceled. So we're just giving some time allowances for people in those kinds of circumstances. And is your email box phone blowing up? Oh, yeah. It seems like the big lift is over to put these policies into place. But the reality is the implementation of them is very time consuming for our staff. We have a lot of questions. Despite the fact that we've tried to put out a, an FAQ document, we've held webinars to try to explain what we're doing. This podcast is another outlet for us to try to get the information out there. But we can't cover every single detail or everybody's particular circumstance. So we are going to continue to get pretty full inboxes and phone calls from folks, which I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about that. I've, no. Ever since I've taken this position, I've really tried to keep an open door because I'd much rather people ask and get clarification on the rules rather than to sort of hide away and hope nobody notices, cross their fingers that what they're doing is the right thing. Right. And I'm going to go ahead and blow it up even more by saying there's a special email address, COVID19info at resnet.us. Hopefully that's a shared email box, not just yours. Yes, it is. Okay, good. So it's, that's COVID19info at resnet.us. We'll go directly to the QA team for QA questions and concerns. And that's specifically for QA. If you have any other type of questions that should go to the standard info ad, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Want to keep it dedicated for that purpose, which usually has sort of like a timeliness or an urgency behind it. And you do want to respond and not be flooded with things that are not uh, of that nature. So we covered a lot today. I appreciate you coming on and just want to see if there's any closing points or thoughts that you wanted to make. 
before we wrap up? No, I just, I really hope everybody's staying safe out there. I know that this has created a lot of anxiety for people, their businesses, your families. It's very personal what everybody's going through, different experiences. And I hope that everybody understands that, that ResNet is here to try to help. We're trying to facilitate our industry moving forward, even though we've, we face these uncertain times. But at some point, things will return back to some new normal. And in the meantime, everybody, please stay safe. Reach out to us if you've got any particular circumstances, questions, that COVID-19 email is a shared email box. So we don't mind getting what sort of might sound like a flood of emails. We're able to handle that as a team and get answers back to folks that allows you to keep moving forward with your businesses. Very good. Hopefully people have met Scott at a conference and can understand the sincerity in this guy that we're talking to here. So thank you, Scott, for being who you are. And thanks for having me on today, Bill. I really appreciate it. And I hope you're staying safe and hope everybody else out there is as well. We are. Thank you much. And thank you for listening to the Res Talk podcast. We talk about this important topic today with Scott Doyle. Uh, everyone, take care. And we'll be back at you again with the Res Talk podcast. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you learned a few things which will help you navigate these curious times. Here's a quote for today. Difficult times disrupt your conventional ways of thinking and push you to forge better habits of thought, performance, and being. That quote is by Robin S. Sharma, an attorney. If you're a pro in the building market, surf on over to resnet.us professional to learn more or join the email list. If you've not already subscribed, please consider doing so, subscribing to the podcast. As always, thank you for listening to Res Talk. Good day. Thanks for listening to the Res Talk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for Res Talk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes or the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on Res Talk. <laughs> <laughs>